Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. I always knew that you're only as good as your informant. Ergo, Sammy Gravano. If anybody can take credit in the demise of John Gotti, it's Sammy Gravano. I mean, he put him away for life. Everybody helped, but Sammy was the key guy. So you're as good as your informant. It's March of 1993. The Mullen Commission had recently been tipped off to the Tickler file, which was where the Internal Affairs Division sent old corruption allegations to die. A Mullen Commission investigator, Frank O'Hara, had also uncovered loads of complaints against cops in the 30th Precinct, including dozens against Officer George Nova, and all of them collecting dust at IAD. But he knows that paperwork can only get him so far. He needs an insider who's also willing to talk. So after analyzing what was going on in the 30th Precinct, it came to me one day, I said, you know what, Uh, let's find out how many cops in the last year or two have been arrested and are doing time for even non-corrupt activities. And one guy jumped out that had been arrested. He worked for about six or seven months in the 30th precinct, and then he got jammed up. He arrested somebody that he assaulted, and then he perjured himself, and he ended up getting one to three. The former cop's name is Charlie. O'Hara gets Charlie out of prison for the day and meets with him in downtown Manhattan. So a week later, I'm in an office, a New York State Corrections office on Church Street, south of Canal. And uh, I'm talking to Charlie about the 3-0, and he's hemming and horn. Yeah, there's some stuff going on. I wasn't part of it. I wasn't there that long. And I keep talking to him. And he says, you know, you really got to talk to my brother. I said, really? He says, yeah. I said, well, who's your brother? He said, my brother's Barry Brown. He worked in the 3-0 for about four years. He probably knows everything that's going on. I says, you think he'll talk to me? If I tell him to, yeah. We had a cell phone. I says, you think you could call your brother? He said, sure. An hour later, in through the door comes Barry Brown. If you're looking into a system that is trying to protect itself and you find out 
that there is this deliberate attempt to bury and hide complaints, then you had to know that the fish stunk from the head down. You got to understand that every bodega in the precinct, drug dealers were hanging out in front of, going in and out of. You didn't know what the connection was, if there was a connection to it at all. Everybody knew George Nova was ripping people off. He was a Hall of Fame corrupt cop. It was malfeasance not to do the right investigation. When I decided to become a cop, my father told me there's going to be a lot of temptations out there and you have to make sure that you do the right thing. I'm Zach Levitt, and this is The Set. Episode 4, The Field Associate. The phone rings, and it's my brother. But he was supposed to be in jail. What was he doing calling me? He told me that he was talking to a couple of guys and that they were asking him about the 30th Precinct and if he knew anything about what was currently going on in the 30th Precinct and the cops that that worked there. They had a lot of complaints on officers there, including George Nova. And he told him that his brother was partnered with Nova. He wanted to know if I could come meet them and talk to them about George and anything that was going on in the precinct. Barry Brown's brother, Charlie, is three years older than him. He was a cop for a short time in the 3-0, and then he got transferred to the 28th Precinct in central Harlem. That's where his career ended when he was busted for perjury a few months before meeting with Frank O'Hara. The details of the charge are still unclear to Barry. My brother got arrested because he said he saw a woman hit another woman with a, a broom or something, and the woman said that it didn't happen. And he ended up getting arrested for it. He went to trial, he got convicted, and he went to jail. It was really a weird case because I wasn't really sure what had happened or what hadn't happened. The press at the time said that Charles Brown, for reasons unknown, got into a physical altercation with a woman when he responded to a call. When a second woman came to assist the first, Brown arrested both for assault and resisting arrest. About a year later, the Manhattan DA's office convicted him of perjury, saying he lied about the facts of the arrests. As a result, Charles Brown received a sentence of one to three years in jail. When he told me that he was with a couple of guys and could I meet them and and talk to them, I figured he was with investigators from internal affairs. I was very apprehensive, but I was worried about him and I wanted to see him and I had an opportunity to see him. I wanted to see if he was okay. I wanted to talk to him. I wanted to be able to tell my family that I saw him and that, that he was doing okay. So I went and met him. When I got there, I walked in the room, my brother was sitting in there and he he was wearing a green prison outfit. And it was just heartbreaking. And I wanted to cry just seeing him there with his hands, you know, cuffed in front of him. 
eating a cheeseburger like a perp you know it was just it, i was so emotional it was it was so upsetting So Barry comes in and we start talking, chit-chatting about the trio and George Nova and this one and that one and what's going on. When I first met Frank, I didn't trust him. But once I started to talk to Frank, I could tell he was just an old school cop who was trying to do the right thing. And he was very believable. And he was telling me stories about some of the cases that he did, how he had worked on the Gotti case. Of all the heads of the five families. Frank was really trying to win me over and just kind of explain the situation of who they were and, and what they were there to do and how they had so much experience working cases and that they were actively pursuing the 30th precinct and that they were gonna make a case and that they had brought in a whole team of people and it really seemed that they were legitimate. It was their job to make cases. If there were things going on and they knew that there were things going on and they didn't make cases, they were going to be embarrassed. The Mullen Commission was going to be embarrassed. The mayor was going to be embarrassed. I just listened to what they had to say, and they gave me their numbers, and they said, maybe we can meet later on, and let's go from there. I said, you have my word that nobody's going to know about this meeting with you and me. So Barry said, okay, we exchanged phone numbers. So we agreed to meet a couple days later to talk. They got a hotel room in a Holiday Inn in Fort Lee, New Jersey. I met him in the hotel and they ordered breakfast. We sat down and, and talked. And of course my mind was racing. My head was just totally spinning with, with everything. I thought it was stolen, and I was like, what are you doing? I, I, was like, hey, I was just, we're stealing the drugs and the guns. Selling them to friendly drug dealers. Robbing drug dealers with, with, with cops. But I still felt this duty to do the right thing, to at least tell these guys what I knew. I could give them a map. I could tell them the things that I knew. and leave it up to them to, to do something. And I started telling them everything I knew from the very beginning. In the 30th precinct, they had seized a couple of safes. Brown begins by telling O'Hara about the time when the locked safe was brought back to the precinct to be opened. And then a handful of guys, including George Nova, split up most of the money inside it, right there at the 30th precinct station house. So the irony of this is it happened in the precinct. Usually a safe comes in, you have a desk officer, maybe the XO is present. Uh, there's supervision in the precinct. So you would think a supervisor would be there and say, okay, take the money out, put it on the table and count it in front of me and voucher it. But I know that didn't happen because cops ended up with money from that safe in their pocket. I said, this is like unbelievable. You know, this was hard to fathom. And, you know, having interviewed a lot of people a lot of times, I usually get the sense when they're embellishing or if they're bragging. And Barry Brown was none of that. This was very matter of fact. 
And I knew he was telling the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And I said, holy shit, we got some mess on our hands. If this can happen in the precinct, under bright lights in front of everybody, what's going on at three o'clock in the morning, 10 o'clock at night, under dim lights? What's going on outside the precinct? This is outrageous. I remember one of the first things I saw responding. Brown tells O'Hara about the cop stuffing a bundle of money into his pocket right in front of him. I was like, this guy just stole money out of the bag. And the midnight guys asking him if he'd help stash their stolen money, guns, and drugs. Put them in the trunk of your car, and then I was like, there's no way. And that one of the midnight guys, Alberto Vargas, was able to buy a sports car with drug money. He had a custom Corvette with his name made for him, for Al Vargas from Chevrolet. Brown talks about Nannery's Raiders. Nannery and his Raiders because they were just so out of control. Booming doors and doing key jobs. Doors that they were knocking down. And that everybody in the precinct knew about it. Everybody was talking about arrests that they were making, money that they were taking. And he also tells everything he knows about George Nova. Barry was invaluable giving us information, and he corroborated most of the complaints against the cops in the 30th precinct. Finally, O'Hara takes a shot in the dark. He asks Brown about some complaints in the 30th precinct file regarding someone who isn't a cop. He's a bodega owner named Wanchi. Reading a few of these folders, okay, common denominator. A bodega owner at 140th and Amsterdam Avenue, who's reported to be a go-between the drug dealers and the cops. They asked me about the bodega. They asked me about Wanchi, and I told them I knew who he was. They were asking me what I knew about his relationship with George and if I knew anything at the time. I told them that I was suspicious that he was going in there constantly. Told them everything I knew. They filled up notepad after notepad with all the information that I gave them. And one of the last questions Frank asked me was, hey, did you report this to anybody? I said, yeah, I reported all of it. And he said, what? I'll never forget the look and expression on Frank's face. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. 
Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash rs10 today. Hi, this is Amy Poehler here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Topic A this morning, cops on the beat and on the take. More than two decades after Frank Serpico unmasked widespread corruption in the New York City Police Department, the NYPD is under the gun again. This time, the Mullen Commission is investigating cops gone bad and a department that didn't police itself. Officer Michael Dowd was arrested in May of 1992 which was the impetus for the formation of the Mullen Commission. It's not that difficult to uh, take money and drugs from any drug dealer. He's got drugs, he knows he's going to jail if you want. So instead of uh, sending him to jail, you take his drugs and his money. His corruption was shocking, but the timing wasn't. In fact, almost every 20 years, for a century, the NYPD had a major corruption scandal. I hope that police officers in the future will not experience the same frustration and anxiety that I was subjected to for the past five years at the hands of my superiors because of my attempt to report corruption. Back in 1971, the Knapp Commission held public hearings to address corruption in the police department, which had become systemic. Mainly, cops taking small payoffs to look the other way. Frank Serpico, who you just heard, was the Knapp Commission's star witness. He was an NYPD detective who blew the whistle on corruption. And then, during a drug bust, he was shot in the face. The officers he was with refused to call for help and instead left him bleeding on the floor. Some thought he was set up to be killed by his fellow cops. A film called Serpico, starring Al Pacino, chronicled his story. I'm a marked man in this department for what? I've already arranged the transfer for you. To where? China? Serpico said the police department was made up of 10% of officers who are absolutely corrupt, 10% who are absolutely honest, and 80% who wish they were honest. That 80% represented what came to be known as the Blue Wall of Silence officers who knew about corruption, but instead chose to say nothing, creating a culture of acceptance. As a result of the Knapp Commission, IAD, the Internal Affairs Division, was overhauled. But instead of uncovering any real corruption, IAD soon developed a reputation for going after cops for minor things, like uniform violations or accepting free coffee or pizza. Internal affairs becomes known as the Rat Patrol, and all incoming officers are warned to steer clear. There was a lot of talk in the academy about internal affairs and don't be a rat, and internal affairs are just horrible police officers that could not become regular cops. They're afraid to be regular cops, so they'd rather be internal affairs. And 
investigate police officers because they can't do the real job, so they would rather investigate cops. Once out in the field, the attitude toward rats gets strengthened every day. Because another NAP era change to address the blue wall of silence was to have a few cops in each precinct who would secretly report any corruption they saw back to IAD. They were called field associates. Everybody knows these FAs are walking among them. They just don't know who they are. And so by the early 1990s, in precincts like the 3-0, where many are actively corrupt, who's the FA, or who's the rat, becomes an all-consuming question. You know, different names were offered for different reasons, but the 30th precinct was like a game of telephone. A story would start on one side of the precinct, and by the time it got to the other side of the precinct, it was totally spun around and twisted, but it was filled with rumors. It was filled with distrust. They were so concerned about who the rat was, who was reporting to internal affairs, who the undercover was, or or what might happen, how they might get jammed up, fired, or arrested. Remember when Barry Brown said he had a secret? I trusted George, and George definitely trusted me. But as time went by, I started to think that he was keeping secrets, but he didn't know that I had an even bigger secret. Brown's secret was that he was a field associate, recruited while he was in the academy to report corruption to IAD. But the problem was, nobody ever told him. This is going to sound like an unbelievable story, but honestly, I was never approached to become a field associate. In fact, at first, I didn't even realize I was a field associate. And you might think, how could that be? Well, there was a guy by the name of John Agliero. I believe he was a friend of a family friend. John Agliero was a lieutenant, a boss in the NYPD. Once I joined the police academy, John Agliero called the house one day and spoke to me on the phone. He said, hey, I hear you're in the academy. How's everything going? Oh, it's going great. Oh, well, if you need anything, if you need any help with your studies or anything, let me know. I'm here to help you. You know, I was just a, a naive kid who really liked the attention from him. And the fact that he was a veteran police officer and he had all these stories and information. They spoke regularly. And then Lieutenant Agliero began asking Brown questions. When I would talk to Agliero, sometimes at the end of the conversation, he would just throw in a little, a little tidbit. How's everything in your academy class? Is there anybody that's, you know, supposed to be using drugs or doing anything that they're not supposed to be doing? No, not that I heard of. I didn't even think about it at first. And then I kind of dawned on me, is this guy internal affairs? When I was in the police academy, we had some instruction about internal affairs. And they talked about the field associate program and that there was probably people in our academy class that were field associates. At that point when they said that, I didn't realize that I was a field associate. 
didn't have a, didn't have a clue. Brown knew IAD's reputation, though, as well as the reputation of cops who spoke to IAD. But he never questioned which side of the blue wall of silence he'd land on. And as far as he was concerned, even though he didn't realize that Lieutenant Agliero had tapped him to be an F.A., having a direct line to report corruption to someone he knew was much safer than the alternative. So Brown never second-guessed these conversations. First, I was like, well, if I saw a cop do something wrong, would I report it? Yes. There was no doubt in my mind if I saw something, I was going to say something, because that's the type of person my father raised me to be. But at that point in time, I thought, well, will I ever see anything happen? I really didn't think so. I wasn't sure. But felt, hey, you know what? It's part of my job as a police officer, and if I see something, I have this connection with him that would make it a lot easier to report something and to call one of these anonymous lines or report something to your captain. They teach you in the academy, oh, if you see something, you can report it to your sergeant or your captain, or you can call the internal affairs hotline. But nobody in a million years were going to do those things. So I felt, well, if I ever saw anything and it was anything I ever wanted to report, hey, I had that connection there and I'd be able to report it to him. By this point, almost 20 years after the Knapp Commission, IAD had become so loose and unstructured that Brown's role as a field associate was never even made official. I did not receive any special training to be a field associate. There was no handbook. There was no papers to read. There was no documentation to sign. No, there was none of that. There was never a formal process to the program. Even when Brown got sent to the 30th Precinct, his role as an F.A. had still never been made clear by his IAD handler. I was never told by him that I was a field agent. I realized it because he was asking me more specific questions that he was getting this information from somewhere. I wasn't giving him the names of people that I work with. He was providing the names and information asking me questions. So it was obvious to me that he was internal affairs and I was a field agent. But I didn't have that conversation with him formally. It was just me and him having conversations and me reporting to him the things that I saw. Some of Brown's early reports were about how prevalent perjury was in the 3-0, that it was part of the culture there. George was like, oh, say it happened on the street, say it happened on the street. Like that time that George Nova told him to change a detail of an arrest he made in the vestibule of an apartment building to make sure it stuck. A couple days later, he goes, oh, I got something on you. I said, what? He told Lieutenant Agliero that even the supervisors in the 30th Precinct pressured cops to perjure themselves. You might remember this from episode two. He screamed about it at roll call the next day. It's like, how stupid can you be? There's two guns sitting by the guy's feet, and you're going to say that you didn't see him with a gun? No wonder why they dismissed the case. And the guy got a reputation of being a rat. Brown even self-reported to his IAD handler that he was told by a captain to take a drug arrest that wasn't his and to lie about it. 
he gave me the collar and said, take this, you know, say you saw him in the, in the lobby, he dropped it on the street or something, and he gave me the whole story and everything. And the guy was prosecuted. Brown knew that this was the type of thing that he had to report to his IAD handler. And he says when he did, Lieutenant Agliero gave him the okay to perjure himself because he knew that there was much bigger corruption going on in the precinct, and he needed Brown there to continue to report on it. I remember reaching back to Agliero about it, and he was like, what happened? I said, well, you know, we arrested this guy. The drugs were there. They were his drugs, but they weren't, they weren't on him. He was like, but you were the captain, right? You were the captain. It was okay, you were the captain. And then he was like, you know, you just got to maintain your cover. If I wouldn't have taken that arrest that day, I would have been, you know, I would have been a rat just like the other guy. Nobody would ever trusted me. Nobody would ever spoken to me. He was like, hey, you got to do whatever you got to do to protect your cover. When Brown finally began hearing firsthand about much more serious corruption, like drug rips and accepting payoffs from dealers, he says Agliero told him that he was taking steps to maintain Brown's cover as an F.A. When I started making some really strong reports of police corruption, he purposely changed all the information that I put in because there was a lot of leaks in internal affairs and he was afraid that I could get hurt or killed or they would find out who I was reporting this information. So if I gave him information on something that two officers did, he would change the information in facts. He's like, well, they're not going to make any cases on this instance that you gave. So the most important thing is that they know that these officers are corrupt. So if you say something happened in an apartment on 135th Street, I'm going to change it that it happened somewhere else. And instead of it happening on an apartment, I'm going to say it happened in the street or that it happened in a car. He says, this way, they'll never be able to tell that you gave this information. So basically, he was purging my reports and turning all the information around, supposedly, you know, to protect my safety and my identity because he was afraid that it could get out and something that could happen to me. So he was changing all the facts of the incident and just putting in the names of the officers that were involved. It isn't hard to see how changing the facts of Brown's reports would also make it difficult for IAD to conduct any follow-up investigations if they chose to, which essentially made these reports useless. But even worse, Brown says that in some reports, key details were left unchanged. Over time, as I started reporting more and more things to him, leaks started coming back that there was somebody in the 30th precinct, that there was a rat there that was reporting information. One time the captain said at a roll call, there's a rat in this precinct. Guys were very paranoid. Then I remember he put in a report that drugs and guns were stolen from a car and actually it was from an apartment, but almost the same facts and information that he put in came leaking back verbatim somehow from somebody in the precinct who knew somebody in internal affairs. I couldn't believe it that this information was coming back. I became very nervous and paranoid that they were going to find out who I was. 
and he assured me that nobody but him knew my identity. But I was terrified. There was police officers saying, hey, we find out who the rat is, we're gonna kill the rat, the rat's gonna die. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Barry Brown had been a field associate inside the 3-0 for several years. But no action had been taken by the Internal Affairs Division to stop the corruption he'd reported in the precinct. So he took things an extra step. He told IAD exactly how some of the officers could be caught. I remember suggesting sting operations and diagramming scenarios to them that would work and they balked on using the scenarios and said that it was too dangerous. I didn't understand why they wouldn't pursue it. Instead of taking any real action, IAD did the bare minimum. Internal Affairs set up an integrity test based on information that I provided. An integrity test is a tool used by IAD to try to catch an officer committing a corrupt act like walking in front of him, dropping money, and continuing to walk, and seeing if he decides to pocket it. But IED's integrity tests weren't fooling anybody. The two officers in the 30th Precinct made the undercover right away because he had on a watch that recruits in the academy often wore, and he also had on the same type of sneakers that recruits in the academy wore. New balance that, that all the rookies wore in the academy. So the integrity test failed, and it failed because of those two reasons. And the cops went back and bragged how stupid internal affairs was and how they would never get caught. As for George Nova, based on Brown's information, IAD tried, at least in its own half-hearted way, to catch him too. George was telling me that he was being followed by internal affairs, that they were following him in unmarked cars, a red crown Vic and a blue crown Vic. One day he called me from his house and he told me that the cars were were outside his house, down the block and around the corner. Nova knew exactly who they were. After simply sitting outside his house in their cars, they drove off and there was no follow-up after that. It was then that Brown realized that IAD wasn't stupid. They were calculating. I was just blown away. I thought that they were just incompetent. And then I realized that it was more than incompetence. 
they didn't want to embarrass the police department. They didn't want to have a scandal because scandal would ruin the careers of different chiefs, maybe the police commissioner, maybe even above. So internal affairs wasn't trying to catch anybody. They were trying to brush it under the rug and hope that these officers would stop stealing. The integrity tests were not strong enough. They were following officers with marked, unmarked cars. Information was getting leaked out from internal affairs back to the precinct. And I think this was a message that was being sent from the higher ups in the police department to knock it off, stop doing what you're doing. But it had the opposite effect because police officers were like, hey, these guys are so stupid, they'll never catch us. And it just made the cops feel that they could get away with even more. Brown finally understood that all of his work with IAD was for nothing. That he'd been putting himself at odds with his coworkers, and even worse, putting his life at risk for nothing. Because IAD never had any intention of acting on any of his reports. I bottled up that feeling inside and, and just repressed everything. I didn't talk to anybody about anything. I was under a tremendous amount of pressure and stress, and it was a dual life between being cop, friend, and informer. My father owned a, a boat, a 25-foot Grady White, that he kept out in Oceanside, Long Island. And from time to time, I would bring different officers out fishing on the boat. And it was a stressful thing. You know, you'd be out there trying to relax. But they were also guys that I had reported information on from time to time. And the funniest thing, the boat next to my father was named Rat Bastard. And <laughs> you can't make this stuff up, man. <laughs> You know, you're working with these guys. These guys are backing you up on fights, disputes, really tough situations in a bad precinct. And at the same time, you're the one reporting information on them and you don't know if they're gonna set you up, if they found out who you were, if you're somehow gonna get hurt or shot on that job or call. I'm starting to think, is this really worth it when they're not doing anything with the information? I realized that internal affairs was a shit show and that they didn't have my back. But I had a relationship with Agliero and I thought that he had my back. He told me that I by far gave him more information than anybody else had ever given him. I was the best field associate that he ever had. And he came to me and he was like, listen, I got to be honest with you. For whatever reasons, they're not going to do anything. You know, you've made all these complaints, we've given them great information. They're not going to do anything. I got to get you out of here before you get hurt. I was really disappointed. It was like, this is internal affairs. It is supposed to protect the honest cops. You're supposed to protect the city from the police officers. And this guy is telling me to transfer. 
you know, the game was rigged and I was the only one who didn't realize. They weren't going to do anything about the 30th precinct. I was tired, I was bitter, and I just wanted to get away from it all. Brown wants to become a detective. And by 1992, he's able to transfer out of the 3-0 and into Manhattan South Narcotics. It's the unit he's working in when he gets the call from his brother a year later in the spring of 1993. And just a few days after that, Brown's having breakfast at that Holiday Inn in Fort Lee, New Jersey with Frank O'Hara. And one of the last questions Frank asked me was, hey, did you report this to anybody? I said, yeah, I reported all of it. And he said, what? I'll never forget the look and expression on Frank's face. A bell went off in my head. I said, Barry, were you a field associate for IED? And he looks at me and says, yes, I was. Well, I had to stay composed because I said, holy shit, I just hit the gold mine. I got a guy that worked in the 3-0 precinct that was reporting all the corruption that was going on in the 3-0 precinct, the IED. And now he's talking to me. And then the next two hours were about all my conversations with the lieutenant from Internal Affairs. And they were like, are you kidding me? They could have made a case out of this. They could have made a case out of that. I can't believe it. They didn't do anything with this information. I mean, it just confirmed so many things to them about the fact that Internal Affairs didn't want to act on the information that they had. We said, okay, now we got Barry Brown. We've corroborated most of the stuff. He's told IED, so we know they know, and they've done nothing about it. Here you are, you're a lieutenant in IED, and you got a guy say, okay, they ripped off a drug dealer at this location. They took his money, they sold his drugs. You don't start a case? Are you kidding me? And they said, man, what a cover-up this is. We went back to the Mullen Commission office. I said, I have some important information about the 30th precinct. When I told them collectively what we stumbled on, and that's the word I got to use, stumbled. I mean, it wasn't because I was so smart. What we stumbled on, their jaws dropped. Their jaws dropped. When I heard his story, I just really couldn't believe it. Mullen Commission Chief Counsel, Joe Armeo. First of all, I didn't even know at the time that the police department had this program where they had cops inside precincts supposedly reporting back to IAD about corruption. Field associates. And I, I didn't remember seeing that in the hundreds of thousands of documents that we demanded from the Internal Affairs Department. And that kind of struck me as unusual because the field associate program was probably the only proactive piece of corruption investigation that I saw existed within IAD. So I thought to myself, why wasn't this a very prominent feature 
of the information and our overview of the IAD. Well, maybe the field associate program was nice window dressing, but the IAD really didn't want to know the information they were reported. So that in and of itself told a story. The police department wasn't motivated to investigate and uncover police corruption. And Barry Brown was the embodiment of all of those failures. In addition to the Tickler file, which proved that past cases of serious corruption were buried, Joe Armeo now has powerful proof in Barry Brown that IAD is still pushing allegations as serious as cops stealing and selling drugs and guns under the rug. And Frank O'Hara thinks he has a way in to uncover all of it. So after talking to Barry, in my mind, we start with the bodega. We lock up the bodega owner. From there, hopefully we can get him to cooperate against Nova. We get George to cooperate, he'll take us a long way. Once I started cooperating with the Mulling Commission, I couldn't stop thinking about it. You know, I couldn't stop thinking about about the investigation, about the 30th Precinct, about internal affairs. It was just on my mind 24 hours a day. I was stressed. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. I, I couldn't concentrate on things. I figured that my identity was going to get out sooner or later, that they were going to have to pass that information on to the police commissioner and to internal affairs, and eventually it would be leaked and that I could follow the same footsteps as Frank Serpico. I figured, to be honest, that that was the beginning of the end of my career. I just had no idea that it was going to unravel the way that it did. Next time on the set. If you think you're just going to drive up there, two guys in a car, and sit on a corner and watch the bodega, well, how do you know what's going on inside? The only way you're going to get in the bodega is with an informant. The Mullen Commission's investigation into the 30th Precinct is underway. I said to him, listen, you're not going to go to jail for life, but you're probably going to go to jail for 12 or 14 years. That rings true. And a good old-fashioned New York City turf war breaks out. I'm here to tell you that we got fucked by the Marlin Commission. That was it for us. The set is created, written, and directed by me, Zach Levitt. Executive produced by me and Chris Corcoran. Produced by Perry Kroll and Ian Mont. Edited by Perry Kroll and Alistair Sherman. Research by me and Ian Mont. Mixing and mastering by Bill Schultz. Original music by Joel Goodman. Marketing, PR, production coordination, sales and operations by Maura Curran, Josefina Francis, Kurt Courtney, Hilary Schuff, Lauren Vieira, Lucas Santrone, Sean Cherry, Lizzie Roberti, and Danny Cutrick. With special thanks to J.D. Crowley, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Leah Reese-Dennis, Tim Clark, Craig Cox, Callum Togus, Rob Morandi, and Eric Donnelly. Thank you for listening to this latest episode of The Set.
It's Sophia Franklin, and if you don't already know, listen up. My mini-series is live now each and every Monday, and the only person missing is you. We're dating, we're dumping, we're learning, and we're tapping into all the feels that originally brought us together. Listen and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.